Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Sunday. Welcome to our stream. If you're joining us on Facebook or YouTube, feel free to just post in the comments a quick hello. We would love to greet you and just say hi to you today. That's kind of our virtual lobby, if you will. And so we would love for you to just show us that you're here, let us say hi, and join in the conversation there. My name is Marcus. I'm one of the pastors here at Evangel, and I'm really excited to continue our series this morning on Hebrews. And the kind of title under our uh, sermon series is called The Supremacy and Sufficiency of Christ. So if you haven't watched some of our other messages on Hebrews, in the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about a, a little bit of a sharper warning that the author was giving to his listeners. And that warning was to grow and continually grow in the knowledge of faith, because if not, you can find yourself in a really challenging spot. And the author did this so that he could kind of prep his hearers for what was to come further in the book. That as they developed their knowledge, that there were going to be some pretty uh, deep concepts that he was going to then bring them through in his letter. And so as we are now past this warning, we're actually finding ourselves here in the stretch. We're finding ourselves in the place where the minds and hearts of his audience and us today are being stretched. And as I was journeying through studying in this next passage, I actually was really thankful for that warning that was given in scripture. Because for me, as I've been wrestling through kind of the pieces of scripture I'm going to share with you today, I needed that warning and I needed that encouragement to continue growing because there are great things that we have ahead here in the book of Hebrews. But before we jump into our passage, I actually want to take us on a brief history lesson. So I'm sure you've heard this uh, saying before. It's very common. You've probably said it yourself, and it's that all roads lead to Rome. So in our context now, what that meant is you can take a different method to get to the same conclusion. But this saying actually dates all the way back to the 1100s. And all the way back there in the 12th century, all of the roads in the Roman Empire would actually lead to Rome. And so it was this incredible feat that the Roman Empire gave where uh, every road that was in their empire, and also even in uh, Northern Africa, would inevitably lead to Rome. And as this was this feat, no matter where you found yourself in the Roman Empire, you could always find your way back to the center. You could always find your way back to that central location of Rome. And so the writer of Hebrews in our next passage is actually exploring uh, a little and employing a little bit of a, the same tactic in this saying. But instead of saying that all roads lead to Rome, instead of saying this about infrastructure, the writer of Hebrews is actually using an Old Testament figure to point towards Jesus. And so in the passage that we find ourselves in today, we see that all roads don't lead to Rome but they actually lead to Jesus. And so we're gonna discover what that means for us today. Because the person introduced in this passage is somebody that we already know. If you've journeyed with us in our Hebrew series, you would know the name Melchizedek. And so we've kind of circled back to the same character. And as I studied this passage, I kind of thought to myself, of all of the people that is contained in the Old Testament scripture, why would the author choose this particular person? Why would the author choose somebody to point to Jesus who has a mysterious, almost obscure background where he has just a little blip in the radar of scripture and it's this short little story that he's referenced? Why would he use this strange person 
this obscure person, to talk about the perfect and complete revelation of God through Jesus. But when you start to dig into the story of Melchizedek in Genesis and look at kind of the comparison that's made in Hebrews, although maybe an obscure Old Testament character, Melchizedek actually reveals much about Jesus' character and also his plan for humanity. So as we look at how Melchizedek points to Jesus, we see the power behind this comparison. If you're taking notes, and we still encourage you to take notes, even if we're online, because it's great to circle back and remember some of the things that God is speaking to us, would you write this down? It says, Jesus, as our eternal king and priest, reveals God's plan for his people and his kingdom. Jesus, as our eternal king and priest, reveals God's plan for his people and his kingdom. Let's turn to our passage in Hebrews now. We're going to be reading from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. But before we read scripture today, I just want to pray. God, thank you so much that by your Holy Spirit, you reveal truth to our hearts through your word. God, I pray that as we journey through what this means, that you are our eternal king and priest, God, that we would hear from your voice, that my voice, if there's anything said in my own strength, would grow so quiet and wouldn't even be heard at all but that your truth would be so clear to our hearts and to our minds today. Jesus, we thank you that your perfect kingship and your perfect priesthood are forever, and that we get to walk in that even today. God, we thank you and we love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen. So as the writer of Hebrews returns to one of his main points in the flow of thought in much of the book, he does a bit of a character study of Melchizedek, and we're going to read that today. It says in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 to 10, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He, being Melchizedek, is first by translation of his name king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descendant, From them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So all the way back in Genesis, Melchizedek was both a priest and a king, which was actually incredibly unusual as this wasn't part of the law in Israel. It wasn't part of their structure uh, of their nation. The office of priest and the office of king were very much separate in the life of Israel, and they had very different functions within the overall life of Israel. And yet Melchizedek was kind of an exception to the rule for a couple reasons. He ruled as both at the same time, And he also ruled even before the law was given to Moses. That kind of made a little bit of this distinction. In Genesis, it says that Melchizedek met Abraham, who was one of the patriarchs of Israel, 
just after he had won a battle against his enemies, and he gave him some bread and drink and blessed him. And as a result, Abraham gave 10% of the spoils of battle as a tithe to Melchizedek. And this is actually an incredible piece that you can easily miss if you're just reading over it, because as we read both in Genesis and in Hebrews, Abraham seems to kind of take second fiddle to Melchizedek. We see that as Melchizedek was a person who blessed Abraham, that in Hebrews it says he was superior, because the superior person blesses the inferior one. And that statement in and of itself is actually pretty bold. Abraham was a patriarch of Israel. He was one of the most important Old Testament figures to Jewish culture. And the audience of Hebrews were likely made up of a large contingent of Jewish converts. And so to say that this patriarch, somebody that they would revere, is second to Melchizedek would have probably stirred up some controversy. But he does this for a purpose, which we'll see later. So the writer of Hebrews then goes on to explain who Melchizedek was in more detail, and he establishes a couple of important things for us to understand for our lives today, but also for us to understand as the passages continue ahead in, our, in the book of Hebrews. So Jewish reasoning had kind of four ways in which they would interpret text of any type, but also biblical text. One of them, the writer of Hebrews uses quite often, and that is analyzing that which scripture does not say. So of course they would analyze what it does and some of the meanings behind that, but one of their uh, pieces that they would add in terms of understanding scripture is understanding what is not said. So in particular with the story of Melchizedek, scripture actually does not say what his parental lineage is. It says he's without mother or father or genealogy. What the writer is trying to say in this is that there is a sense of almost uh, eternal priesthood that was associated with Melchizedek. Since his priesthood came before the established Levitical priesthood, and since there is no person before him or after him in the expressed lineage, that he was kind of just this being that kind of came in time but continues forward. But since Melchizedek is being used as a comparison to Jesus, the argument is that Jesus' kingship and priesthood is the same. It is eternal, it's without end. And Jesus' kingship and priesthood is, of course, superior to Melchizedek's because it is eternal in a way that Melchizedek's never could be. Because Jesus is eternal. He was here as a part and a participator of creation. He was here before the foundation of the world, and he continues because of his death and resurrection to live now. In the story of Abraham and Melchizedek, Melchiz Abraham kind of was second fiddle, but in the story of Melchizedek and Jesus, Melchizedek then begins to play second fiddle. And this theme of kind of priesthood and covenant continues on further in chapter 7, but today I actually want to focus on the names given to Melchizedek and how that comparison of those names shows that Jesus as our eternal king and priest reveals God's plan for his people and his kingdom. In the second half of Hebrews chapter 7, verse 2, it says, He, Melchizedek, is first by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. And then he is also King of Salem, that is, King of Peace. And if Jew in Jewish culture, someone's name was incredibly important. It wasn't just a placeholder, it wasn't just a reference point for somebody else, but it spoke to their character and their nature. That's why we see through the Old Testament and also the New Testament, people being renamed in significant parts of their life. Whereas their character, as their nature began to shift, that oftentimes they were given a new name. 
And that's because that name spoke to their character, spoke to their nature. And so when that shifted, they were given a new name. So names were incredibly important in Jewish culture. And so this would have meant that Melchizedek's character, his nature was one of righteousness and peace. And if this is true of Melchizedek, then since he's being used just as a character sketch for who Jesus is, then it is true also of Jesus, but in incomparably greater measure. We see that righteousness and peace are actually also central aspects to Jesus's kingship and priesthood, both in our lives and in our world. An author, as I, actually, as I was studying, made the claim that the first part of Hebrews 7 that we're in today actually had no real context or relevance to us today. That it was so contextual for his readers that it actually lost its meaning for us today, but I would fully disagree with that. And I would say that if you're exploring faith in Jesus, or if you're an apprentice of faith, uh, or sorry, an apprentice of Jesus, then I think understanding Jesus's character and God's plan for his kingdom and his people is actually incredibly important for how we live today. And some of that is revealed in this scripture. And so I think it has a specific word for us today too. Because the reality is our world is actually desperately in need of righteousness and of peace. The turmoil that our, wor our world has been in has actually, I think, even widened that gap of need for righteousness and peace through the lens of faith. Not to be something that we just know in our heads, but to truly be something that we believe and also live. And so as I was studying this week, multiple commentators talked about kind of the combined theme here of righteousness and peace found throughout scripture. And as I was kind of reading some of those authors who are much smarter than I am, it was really interesting for me that this theme kind of spans through all of scripture. I'd never noticed it before. And yet when we take a look at scripture, we see it dotted throughout the entire biblical text. So to give an example, Psalm 85 verse 10 says, righteousness and peace kiss each other. A little bit of a strong picture, but there's this closeness and connectedness to righteousness and peace. Isaiah 32 verse 17 says, and the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. In Romans 5 verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because Jesus as our eternal king and priest reveals God's plan for his people and his kingdom. And the eternal kingdom that Jesus is establishing is one of perfect righteousness and perfect peace. William Barclay says, Righteousness must always come before peace. Without righteousness, there can actually be no such thing as peace. If our world is in desperate need of a king and kingdom of righteousness and peace, then we need to know how scripture defines these two words. Because I think they'll inform how we view Jesus and they will inform how we view the world around us. So we're going to kind of look at those two words today. So righteousness in the Bible is actually often tied to justice. The Bible Project, which is a resource to kind of explain really broad pieces of scripture and broad themes in scripture, you can find them on YouTube, says it really well when they simply explain righteousness as being a good person, but there's more. Specifically, it is an ethical standard that refers to right relationship between people, viewing them as the image of God, and right relationship with God, through Jesus. And so injustice in our world is actually a product of people living without that standard, that standard of right. 
or else thinking that their standard of right is actually the correct one, rather than the perfect example of scripture. So it comes from broken horizontal and vertical relationships. And what I mean by that is horizontal are relationships that we experience with each other. And vertical means the relationship that we experience with God. Because we live still in a sin-tainted world. And the idea of righteousness is actually just living by God's perfect standard. But this is actually impossible to do on our own. We actually can never measure up because we do live in a world that is tainted by brokenness. But this is why Jesus came for you and I. So that he can be the person that restores that right standard where we can be right both with God and with each other. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the definition for us. Righteousness isn't what we think is right, but what scripture declares is right. Jesus, as our eternal king and priest, reveal God's plan for his people and his kingdom. This means that Jesus, as the king of righteousness, establishes his kingdom and judges us in perfect righteousness, which means that his kingship is fair, it's eternally upright, it is both uh, ethically and socially perfect, and it is also connected to his mercy. Friends, as we consider that, as we consider that rule in our lives, as we consider that expression of leadership in our lives, that's a kingdom that I want to be a part of. And it's a kingdom that each one of us are invited into as participators in righteousness through faith in Jesus. That we actually have the invitation already there to join that kingdom. And our world needs that perfect standard to live by, especially in times like now, when the world seems polarized, when it seems disunited, because without this perfect standard, we end up just sowing discord. We end up sowing oppression. We end up sowing chaos. But as we see with this theme in scripture, as the king of righteousness rules in our lives and in this world, peace follows in his kingdom. And it reverses the seeds of discord it reverses the oppression and it reverses the chaos that our world is in. And so the question I think that we ask ourselves is, will you submit to our eternal king of righteousness and participate in his kingdom? Be a part of that that he invites us into. And as people bend and are bent right now under the weight of their sin, under the weight of their brokenness, will we be people who boldly stand upright and be part of the mission of leading people to Jesus, the one who is our righteousness. Will we be a part of that? Will we allow Jesus to lead us in his righteousness? So the second word that we find is peace. And the second character piece that Melchizedek shadows Jesus is being the king of peace. When we think of peace, we can often think of kind of an absence of conflict, and to some extent that is true, but the biblical understanding of, of peace is actually much richer and much deeper than just that. The word for peace in the Old Testament is shalom. In the New Testament, it's irene. But this word paints a pretty clear picture. The very foundational meaning of shalom or of irene is complete. It's complete. It shows this picture, it paints this picture of a perfect stone that has no cracks and has no holes in it. We all have brokenness. 
in our lives in some way, and, and we don't have the ability to fill the cracks that have come as a result. It can be easy to think that we can, but it's all that is is just a quick patch, patch job, and eventually those cracks will begin to show again. And an absence of peace, if we're looking at this picture, means a breaking down of certain parts of our lives. But friends, there is hope. There is hope for us today. And that hope is we have a king of peace. That in our broken world, in our own brokenness, we can find wholeness in him as we submit to his reign and rule in our lives. That you today, if you've never experienced it before, even if you maybe feel like you're not experiencing it now, that you can experience the peace of God today. No matter how broken you feel, no matter how broken you came onto this stream, that you can experience the peace and the completeness of God. The idea of peace in the biblical text is personal, like we just said, but it is also corporate. To bring shalom or peace in regards to others means bringing wholeness to other people. This is done through reconciliation. That's what Jesus did on that cross as he brought that completeness to our relationship with God and others. And Jesus' death and resurrection invites us to be right with God, which brings a sense of wholeness to our lives, a work that he does as a beautiful act of grace. Jesus is a king of peace because he has offered his peace, his completeness, his wholeness to us and to others by doing something only he could do, to win the war against sin and death. Jesus as our eternal king and priest reveals God's plan for his people and his kingdom. And this peace, just like Jesus' kingship and priesthood, will last forever. That in this world we may find sources of peace, but they don't remain. They don't last. But Jesus' reign does, and we can find that in him. The original audience in Hebrews would have probably desperately needed to hear this word from the author of Hebrews because it's likely that the audience was experiencing persecution. They're experiencing rejection and social isolation. They're experiencing physical harm as a result of their faith, imprisonment, other brutal tactics. And as a result of their faith, and sorry, and some were at risk of falling away from faith completely. They were living in a religious and a social climate that was far, far, far from God's right standard for the world. And it was beginning to truly test their ability to endure. And yet, as they're in the middle of this persecution, the author of Hebrews is reminding his audience that they have full access to the king of peace. That in the conflict, there can be wholeness and there can be peace. I don't know where you find yourself right now, but I want to remind you that the king of righteousness and peace is near to you. That you may be feeling like things are crumbling around you, that there are cracks beginning to show, that there are holes at things that you don't love are leaking out. But the King of Peace is near to you today. You have full access to the wholeness found in Jesus today. The writer of Hebrews has actually already talked about this. He talked about how we can boldly approach the throne of grace. And on that throne, we find our King of righteousness and of peace. And as much as this peace, this wholeness is a gift for us, it's also a responsibility if we're people of faith to bring peace to those around us. These are the words of Jesus that I want to share with you today. He says in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, not necessarily the peacekeepers or the peace lovers, but peacemakers. 
for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. William Barclay comments on this when he says, it has been suggested that since shalom means everything which makes for someone's highest good, that this beatitude, this piece of scripture means, blessed are those who make this world a better place for all people to live in, for they are doing God's work. And all people, friends, means all people. Regardless of our opinion, regardless of our view, our bias, our experience with people around us, whether we think that they deserve that wholeness or not, all people is all people. And if we submit our lives to our king who is called peace, then we also must be about his business of peacemaking. Because the world I described for the original audience of Hebrews doesn't actually sound much different than ours today. Our world is still fractured. And in this cultural moment, it's polarized, it's in conflict, it's hurting, and it's looking for means of righteousness or a standard of right and peace that are not bringing any type of fulfillment to them. Friends, our world needs the king priest of righteousness and peace. They need the revelation of Jesus in their lives. The writer of Hebrews takes this obscure, cloudy figure and points to the revealed Jesus. And I want to encourage you today, no matter how big or how small, no matter how obscure or prominent you may feel this morning, that you are actually able to point to the revealed Jesus as well. In this passage, Melchizedek was the road that led to Jesus through the ways that he reflected him. Each one of us has a great opportunity as well to be people who are a road and an avenue that leads broken people to the king of righteousness and the king of peace. That if Melchizedek is the road that led to Jesus, that each one of us can also be responsible for being another avenue that leads to that same source. And so will you be that avenue today? Will you be that avenue for people to walk in the righteousness of God and experience the wholeness of peace that he brings? Because I want to reiterate what Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Our friends, our family, our world needs peacemakers. In the chaos, they need people of peace, especially today. And we can only do that by submitting our lives to the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And so if you're exploring faith with us today, and you're experiencing maybe those cracks, or you're maybe experiencing a fleeting sense of peace that you can't quite grasp in your hand, but you hear that there is somebody who can lead you that is that peace and is that standard, and you want to take that next step in exploring what that means for you by giving your life to Jesus, by submitting your life and turning away from your brokenness to the king of righteousness and peace, we have a couple ways that you can follow up with us. We would love to connect with you. If you phone us uh, here at the church at 604-483-4283, you can talk to one of our pastoral staff and we can guide you through what some of those next steps look like. Or if you're a little phone shy, uh, you're welcome to also text us at 604-210-8535. And if you're here and you just need prayer, uh, whether that's a situation you're walking through, whether that's a need that you have, whether that's you wanna celebrate something great today, those numbers are also for you as well. 
So you can phone us at 604-483-4283 or text us at 604-210-8535. We would love to connect with you. We would love to pray with you and journey in your uh, exploration of faith in Jesus. And so let's pray together. God, thank you that you are the standard in which we can look and see what is right. And that as we walk in that, that we experience your wholeness and your peace. God, I pray that we would walk in that righteousness, trusting you and walking with you, which is the only way that we can do it. God, I pray that we would be people who determine that we will be peacemakers. That as there is chaos in our world, as there is strife around us, that we would decide today to be peacemakers and to operate in that part of who you are as we walk out our journey of faith with you. God, we thank you that you are not surprised by anything happening in our world. And yet, even in the chaos, we can experience your peace today. So I pray for people who are feeling the absence of that, that you would presence yourself so clearly and obviously with them. God, thank you that you've revealed your purpose and your plan for our lives and that it's good and it's full of life. We thank you and we love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so glad that you were able to jump on our stream. We've been so thankful for the way that you have, guys have been faithful in your giving uh, and in your obedience in tithing. Uh, but our work's not finished yet, friends. We still have work to do as God establishes his kingdom here in Powell River. And so if you want to give to our church this morning and to God's mission for the world, uh, we would love for you to do that. And there's a couple ways to do that. Today, we're actually here at the church. Um, from 9 until 12. And so you can come in and do what we call drive-through generosity. We can pull up, we can tithe here at the church, and we'll say a quick hello, and then you can be on your way. Or you can come in during uh, the week. We are here from Sunday to Thursday, from 9 until 5, to help you with that if you need it then. And then finally, you're able to give online. So if you go to myevangel.church forward slash give, It'll take you through a couple steps just to walk through the flow of giving there. And you can do a one-time gift there. You can set up recurring payments there. Um, and so there are a couple options for you there as well. But thank you so much for your faithfulness and your consistency in giving because we know that God is doing great things. So thanks guys for joining us. We'll see you again next week.